Hello and welcome to Dowdy, the podcast where me, Mariana Feijó, talk to my guests about the concept of bravery, or braveness, even just the moments where folks have been slightly out of their comfort zones. Hello! This week I was brave because I walked outside in the dark with my earphones in. I realize this may not seem like a huge thing, but it's... You know, I like to be aware of my surroundings in the dark when I may be jumped for robbery reasons or for darker reasons. And I know it's not like also very rational what I'm going to say now, but uh, I'm, I've been mostly walking in familiar surroundings where I feel like I know where people are going to jump out from, which bushes are good for hiding. So I feel like I can rely more on my visual input and I don't necessarily need my auditory input so much to 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 be safe and i'm sure i will not wear earphones in unfamiliar surroundings to be safe as you know it's getting dark early i like going for a walk um, and getting those steps in and sometimes i do it in the dark and doing it without a podcast on my ears is just like madness so i'm doing it anyway please don't don't attack me while I'm wearing earphones, don't make my choices publicly viable of shame. Um, I also want to apologize for all the punching I'm doing to my mic stand and kicking off my guitar that will happen in the next few episodes. I'm trying to stop myself from doing it, but it still happens. I think it happens more when I get nervous about what I'm saying or about the way the person I'm talking to is perceiving me. So I'm working on it. It's like a process. I also think I need to buy a new chair that doesn't squeak. I'll do it at some point, I promise. In the meantime, just like bear with me and all the squeaking, punching and guitar noises. Uh. <laughs> and these are all the disclosures I think I need to make about this episode, which starts, as Dowdy always starts, with my guest, Honey Leavitt, introducing yourself. Hi, my name's Honey Leavitt. I am a podcaster and comedy performer in Brooklyn, New York. My pronouns are she, her, and uh, I don't know. I'm just really excited to be here. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you. You're maybe my first guest I haven't met in person. Oh, wow. So it's super exciting for me to to break that wall. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. I... Especially as I've been listening to your podcast and I really like it. So Thank yeah, you so it's much. fun to have uh someone like that like a new experience yeah uh, for my podcast thank you so much I I'm so I'm so I I mean I, I I like your podcast too and I and uh and it's so thrilling to have this time in uh in this like pandemic like long-term quarantine situation to be able to like you know reach out to people and participate with like you know, podcasting interviews and listen to other people's podcasts. And like, I'm, it's funny, you said I was the first person on your podcast that you haven't met in person. And I think at this point, I've recorded episodes, at least half the episodes I've recorded are with people I haven't met in person, because I, you know, I only started recording and releasing this year. So I, yeah. you know, <laughs> Yeah, me too. I've only started like after the pandemic, even though I have been planning the podcast for a while, it, it took a pandemic for me to actually sit down and mm -hmm. start recording. But yeah, I've been asking like people I know because it's easier. But yeah, I'm very happy you, you said yes to my to my invitation. Yay! <laughs> How would you define bravery? How do I define bravery? Uh, 
I now this I didn't make this up, but um, but I loved it when I heard it. I think bravery is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's m- maybe like the definition. I I've been liking uh to see different perspectives from like different people because some people get some things in their definition that I hadn't thought thought about. Uh, like the the most uh, mind blowing one for me was that bravery is on the eye of the beholder. Which for me resonates a lot because I th- I think I never agree with people when they tell me, oh, you've been brave because you've done that. I'm like, not me, brave? No, never. <laughs> yeah, people have called me brave for some things that I've, I've done, which I didn't feel brave at the time. They just felt like the, like the only option. So it was like, well, I didn't feel like I had a choice, so it didn't feel very brave. I guess my, fir- my example of that is um, I... So I went to law school. I graduated in 2009. I was planning to be an attorney, um, but I was having a lot of problems with my mental health. I was um, diagnosed with ADHD in law school. I'd never been diagnosed before. I just I knew that I was having trouble studying and there was something going on with me that like my friends weren't having the same problems. And I'd always been kind of a, not a great student, but I just thought it was because I had some sort of moral failing. <laughs> Like, I'm just lazy. That's my problem. Um, But I was like, okay, something is happening with me, like my cognition, like there's something that's not working. So I went to like a a clinic on campus that did ADHD testing and I got diagnosed. And they, and this was like my third year of law school. So I was about to graduate when I got the diagnosis and I was like, shit, uh, what am I going to do? But I was relieved because like I knew something was wrong. And the counselor I spoke to, he said, you know, there's a lot of people who are intelligent and have undiagnosed ADHD because they, you know, they find ways to cope in school. And it's not until they get to like graduate level um, studying when they realize that they can't like do, they just like can't function that way anymore. Because like in law school, all you do is read and not only read, but you have to process things in a very specific way. And it's kind of a mathematical like style of understanding things and I was just like mm-hmm. I was just like falling apart I mean I couldn't I could barely like function and sorry I lost my train of thought <laughs> I have ADHD um <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh I so think you- so I so I, I got out of law school and I you know I studied for and took and passed the bar exam but I was really unhappy and um I moved to New York I I started working in publishing. I hadn't joined the bar at that point, and I didn't. Uh, there weren't only a lot of legal jobs available because it was 2009, so it was right after the mm-hmm. the, the big recession. The crash, yeah. Uh, so a lot of so I started working in publishing, and I loved the people that I worked with, um, but I hated the work. And you know the way that publishing industry is now, there's like, well, it's probably worse now, but in 2009, it was like there were four people doing the job of one person. Like, you know, people, the the departments kept shrinking, 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 but the work was still there. So everybody's just like pulling their hair out. Uh, And I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do myself. So after my publishing gig ended, I didn't know what I was going to do. And my friend had a dog walking company and she, and I was like, well, I'll just walk dogs until I figure something else out. I don't know but I fell in love with the work. I really, really loved it. And I worked like seven days a week for two years. I just, I just loved it. I was obsessed. So I decided to become a dog trainer instead of an attorney. And uh, (laughs) it was a big shift. A lot of people were confused, especially my parents. They were like, why would you do all that work and then not do it? And I was like, this job makes me happy. I didn't think that was possible. I want to do it. (laughs) 
And then, you know, later on, my mom was like, it was so brave of you to like choose an alternative track. And I was like, I don't know. It kind of felt like I was either going to be a dog trainer or kill myself. So it just didn't really feel like much of a choice. Yeah, uh, yes. I, I, I've, I, not, not that. Yeah, I've had a similar experience, not with like the mental health diagnosis, but with the changing completely. I have a master's in biochemistry oh. that I've decided I didn't want to do anymore after a while doing research. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I changed careers completely. And yeah, my my parents weren't particularly uh, <laughs> excited about the fact that I had just they had paid for my uh, studies, and now no, I don't want to do it. Mm, yeah, uh... it's very different in Portugal by, between we uh, for like paying for universities quite cheap. It's not the same as like uh, yeah. in the US that you have to take. Uh, loans and stuff mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't really happen in Portugal I uh, did my university paying like not even 1000 euros a year so you know it's I yeah. think uh, it's so <laughs> yeah. inexpensive I mean that's cheaper than like the cheapest public school it was free until 96 I think they only started charging for a uni after that this country is a disaster <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I borrowed so much money to go to a private law school. I just went to the best school that I got into because that was like the reigning wisdom at the time was you go to the best school that you get into because that's your best chance of getting a good job when you get out. So that's what I did. And the best school that I got into was very expensive and I'll never pay it off. Um, so, you know, I'm on like income based repayment. So I have to pay a big chunk of my income for the next yeah. like 30 years. Yeah, that's like uh, a scary, a scary thing uh, to, mm-hmm. to start a life with that on you it's is very scary. Yeah. It is scary. I mean, and I do, th- do think you do that despite being afraid, but it's not necessarily brave. It's just what people do. Yeah, I mean, I if I was maybe if I was brave, I would just say fuck it and send them five dollars a month for the rest of the time and just not worry about my credit. But I, I'm afraid of my credit score being bad, so I make giant payments it's a racket um you know i'm hopeful that we'll get some better laws in this country and whatever i'm not that i'm a little hopeful that we'll get better laws (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's uh the whole world is a bit upside down right now uh because i i I live in the uk which is not great either uh oh really i've been Uh, dying to live in europe should i not bother Oh, I guess the UK. I've been I've been dying to live in the US in in New York, and I'm like putting a pause on it because of uh, everything that's going on. Well, this is a great time to move because the rents will never be cheaper. Um, But they're but it's not cheap. I mean, like they've come down to like still you know hundreds of dollars above reasonable. Like it's yeah. still way too expensive, but the I live in London, which is also very expensive. Oh, yeah. And the rents have dropped, I think they say thirty-four percent, and they're still like how, how can you pay that much for a room? I, I'm very lucky because I got like a a cheap rent mm-hmm. four years ago when I moved. And I can't I I think I can't move because I can't find as cheap a rent yeah. anywhere, even with the drops of thirty-four mm-hmm. percent, which seems a lot it is a lot my i very we're very lucky where we are um i moved into this apartment um like 10 years ago and i have a really good relationship with my landlord so my rent has stayed the same for 10 years so i'm paying 10 years ago rent which was high 
10 years ago, but, um, and now, uh, <laughs> but it's lower <laughs> than it would be. So it's really nice. Yeah. We're lucky. Because otherwise yeah, it would be a little problem, bit of this neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with moving now is that visas applica visa applications are closed. So yeah, I can't move uh, legally oh. to the US. Yeah. Yeah. I know someone who moved to Germany a few months ago because their long-term partner was in Germany. So they managed, like that was their workaround. Uh, yeah. I'm very jealous. <laughs> very jealous <laughs> I got to move. I think my plan B is actually Belgium because um, it's in order to become a permanent resident in Belgium, you only have to own a business. That's it. Mm -hmm. So I think I could do that. I own a business here, so I could probably figure that out. Put it, uh, just yeah. like and then change I, it over there. Uh, and then like, I have to learn to speak either like Dutch, German or French too. But it's crazy for a country to have like three main languages, like where yeah. I only speak one language because I'm, I mean, I, I have like, I can understand Spanish and I can speak a tiny bit of Spanish, but not really. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself I bilingual. I think it's super understand. Like I speak four or five languages, That's but I think amazing. it's super understandable for someone whose first language is English to not speak other languages because you can ac access everything with English. Yeah. Also our uh, education system doesn't really, I mean, we, you, you have to take languages in high school and college, but not to the extent that like there's any sort of proficiency. And I didn't yeah. really start taking languages until I was like 14. So that's, so I missed that big, you know, that developmental period when like, I don't know, I don't, I assume that you started learning languages younger. I don't really yeah, know. I was nine when I started learning and now it's even earlier. Like my niece started learning English when she was four or five yeah so yeah it's uh um, yeah, yeah that makes sense that's when children's brains are you know i don't know the word um yeah they they are more like prone to get that sort of information and actually the way she learned english at that time at that age was not even very systematic or she wouldn't know how to sp really speak english because they will just like say were like animal names and stuff so she wouldn't be able to communicate in english but ha just having the um, i think the uh, vocabulary exposure to the yeah. language mm -hmm. uh, helps yeah for sure yeah it does so yeah i gotta learn french and move to belgium yeah <laughs> and that's like huge <laughs> but i think like belgium may be a good option because as i was saying the uk is crazy right now and it is leaving the eu apparently without it's possible that it will live without a, a an agreement because they're rubbish uh so yeah. that is rubbish <laughs> i mean you know the the rise of fascism in the united states is really scary to watch i can only imagine living in europe that's much scarier because there are still people there's plenty of people alive who remember the last time that fascism yeah. came to power in europe and how devastating that was it's, I think it's one of the weird things about the UK because they were they fought against it, but they never had it in like a big way in the UK because mm. fascism never made it to power in the UK. Yeah. So I think they they think they're sort of immune to it. Yeah. Whilst in Portugal, we were in a dictatorship until seventy four, wow. so it's very very present to us mm -hmm. that that is a possibility and still there's the right right wing is rising in portugal still with that but yeah i think it's uh, something that i feel is a, a difference a different experience from uh, between portugal and the uk 
Yeah, it's funny. I think a lot about fear and tribalism in our like present day society because we have on the one hand, you know, human beings have made these that the incredible advancements in technology and science and but we're using these tools in like a very backwards superstitious caveman like ways. Um not I say we, so many people are. I mean, I I think that, um, but even some of the smartest people have like a a bit of tribalism to them. Like, you know, I live in a, um, I grew up in in North Florida, in the panhandle of Florida on the Gulf Coast and living in Brooklyn, New York uh, amongst these, you know, privileged liberal elite people, I hear a lot of, prejudice about people from southern states and florida specifically florida is its own you know is a, is basically a punchline to the rest of the country and um it's really like it wears me down because i hear it so often you know i hear so much like yeah. just sort of like offhanded like prejudice about um and i think there's something i think there's something about like you know identifying too closely with one group that really like it causes it causes so much like misunderstanding between different like identities of people and people who, you know, people who are liberal, I think really bothered me the most because they're the ones who claim to be the most open-minded. And um, there's parts of me that want to like revolt and like just be a fucking redneck. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm not though. I'm a, I'm also, I'm also like further to the left than most liberals. I know I'm, I'm in like the democratic socialists of America and I do like volunteering and, activism and stuff so like I'm pretty far to the left but um I mean the left being like I mean I'm basically like a a Roosevelt Democrat right so like yeah I'm basically like let's get a green new deal and like let's you know let's use the government like for to like put people back to work and like you know crazy stuff like we did in the 1930s when we fixed the economy (laughs) it was like (laughs) crazy stuff like that but it's just because you know the center isn't really the center anymore. It's like basically yeah. like the soft right. So yeah. So those of us yeah, like on the left are just. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I think it's like ahead. a very, very fun, uh, fun, not fun. It's not fun, <laughs> but sort of amusing to, to realize how much so- socialism is like a, a big word in America. It's mm-hmm. like almost no, no, no one can say they're a socialist because <laughs> yeah no uh, let's not give rights to the people i don't know it feels looking from the outside it feels a little bit like that yeah it's it's very it's very much like a boogeyman like a and the thing about the word socialist is that uh you know people democrats don't want to call themselves socialists because they're afraid that the right wing will use that word against them but the problem is is the right wing uses that word against all democrats like socialists or not so like it doesn't really mean anything it's just like a, it's like a catch-all for things democrats do so like mm-hmm. trying to distance themselves from socialists just kind of backfires you know and then i think two people equate wrongly equate socialism with fascism because democratic socialism is what we're talking about you know when yeah. when we're democratic socialists it's in the name uh, we're not talking about like, yeah, you, you know, we're not talking about one party being in charge. You know, we're not talking about becoming China. <laughs> like, we're talking about like, you know, using democracy to benefit more people than it does now. Yeah, that's all. For me, for me in particular, is very amusing because it's it's sort of not to such a big extent, but it's also similar in the UK when people talk about socialism. There's like a, 
So what is socialism? Is it uh, super radical and super to the left? And they're all there. There is a bit, a little bit of that. But in Portugal, what is the Labour Party in the UK, which is the I'd say center left party, is called the Socialist Party in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And the the center right party is the Democratic Socialist Party. <laughs> so they're both. Yeah. Socialist parties. So the- Social socialism doesn't mean yeah. uh, radical in any way no. in Portugal. No, so and- yeah, it's interesting for me to be uh, yeah. to have exposure to different ways of seeing. Yeah, of people seeing the world. Yeah, um, I mean, words don't. I guess words don't really mean that much anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they just mean whatever you want them to mean. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> It's crazy. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the the party that came to power in Germany in the 30s was the National Socialists. So that's yeah. like, that doesn't, those two words together don't sound so bad, but like, boy, they couldn't have been worse. They really couldn't have been worse. Yeah. You can use words the way you like yeah, to yeah. use them and to sell them. It's all marketing. <laughs> it's all marketing. Yeah, no, I, I think that... Uh, it's really true. Um, part, you know, part of the problem in the United States is that we we have undervalued public education to the extent that we have a lot of like really, really, really ignorant people, and like we don't teach them, we don't teach civics, we don't teach. You know, there should be classes on American government and voting, and and not just like history classes, like, mm-hmm. um, but. In the U.S., like there's so there's so little funding, and there's like so much poverty, and there's and schools are overcrowded, and this and this and that. That like, um, you know, we're just churning out people who don't know anything about, um, you know, what it means to have a functioning government work for the people. Yeah. You know, so people are consumed with you know just making sure that they don't have to pay for anybody else's stuff. That seems to be like mm-hmm. the basic tenet of american citizenships these days like just make sure that i don't have to pay for anybody else's stuff like i want good health care but i don't want to pay for other people's health care i want a good education but i don't want to pay for other people's education or other people's children my children have been educated i don't want to pay for other people's kids to get educated <sighs> stupid yeah <laughs> it's very i think it's very, we're in a very hard moment in history yeah. where things need to change but it's really hard to to know yeah. how to go about doing it because it feels like you need to yeah. radically change everything. Yeah. And that's that's how? scary. <laughs> that's very scary. And yeah, and knowing yeah. how it's also like yeah. uh, uh so you'd say like the changing careers will have been your moment of bravery that you've thought about or did you think about that was other a big moment of bravery. bravery. Yeah. I also think just not dying has been brave for me. Um, not to be too dark, but, uh, I, you know, I have, I have, um, chronic depression and I, and I was hospitalized for the first time when I was, uh, 22 and, uh, wait, 20, 2000, yep, 22, sorry, (laughs) I can't do the math. And I had a, um, I had a psychotic episode where I just, I truly like lost, like lost my mind and was like hearing things and misunderstand, like, uh, in a state of psychosis where I thought people were trying to kill me. And when I came back to um, more or less my right mind, you know, the fear of, 
that that followed of knowing that I had lost my mind was really acute and stayed with me and I still and still exists to some extent um and then following those the hospitalizations that I had that were just long stretches of um really bad depression and um you know and even on medication sometimes I would just be like really really extremely depressed and you know depression is it's more than just feeling like sad sometimes you don't feel anything like not even sad you just feel like this 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 flatness that weighs you down like it feels like you're um sometimes it feels like moving through like jello or soup like everywhere you go like everything takes more effort Mm -hmm. and also um there is a weird distancing from everything in your life where it's like you're watching your life happen on television all the time so it's like you're, you're really detached from it but then also being depressed, it's like the TV show you're watching, nothing happens. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> so, you know, living like that for a long period of time makes a person want to die. And I've definitely experienced periods of like, I would call it like being passively suicidal where I wasn't like actively trying to die. But like, if I had died, I wouldn't have cared. Or sometimes I would wake up and wish that I was dead instead of having to get out of bed. And that years of that, right? So yeah. Sometimes I think just staying alive was an act of bravery. So there's that too. Um, and I, I'm really like fortunate. I have, um, I've been on the same medication for a long time, but you know, the combination of med- of medication and learning to meditate and exercising and, um, you know, therapy have gotten me to a place where um, sometimes I'm not depressed at all, which is not something I even thought was possible at one point in my life and um I was real scared at the start of this pandemic because I was like oh god I have to stay home all the time I'm gonna get fucking depressed again and then for months I was like am I depressed or I'm am I just like coronavirus depressed like everybody else like (laughs) is this medical or is this like the normal level of depression that one would expect (laughs) under these circumstances (laughs) and uh and then you know about three weeks ago I did start to get like really depressed and I was really disappointed because I hadn't been depressed for like two years and I was like I was really like riding that wave and like excited about it and then I was like feeling these symptoms of depression come back and I was like fuck here we go like this is what I've been dreading but also the thing about dreading something is that when it arrives it's like well this sucks but it's not as bad as it wasn't as it was going to be in like my fearscape yeah so anyway still alive very brave (laughs) I do think it's very brave to to like ask for help and get help because mm-hmm. that is sometimes like one of the hardest things. Yeah. Like I I truly think I need to to get help sometimes uh, for my mental health and I haven't yet because oh. it's very expensive oh. because it's hard to like find the right person and all of that. So you just like keep pushing it. Back. Yeah, and it's not like I think it's not uh, my issues are not drastic and. I just need, uh, yeah, whatever. I don't know. I think it will help to to have like some help in mm-hmm. that in that uh, field, but I just don't. Also, I had COVID earlier in March, and the other day I was uh, answering this questionnaire for a study about symptoms, like the the ones that keep uh, that keep being with you for long periods of time. So I was answering it, and there's a lot of questions about: Do you still feel fatigue after eight months or whatever? And some of them were 
mental health stuff like do you feel depressed do you feel uh, anxious and i'm like yes but is it because i'm stuck home for the past seven months or is it because i had covid i think it's more likely that i've been stuck home for seven months yeah. and i haven't done the things that usually get me happier yeah for sure yeah yeah i um i gained a little bit of weight over the over this pandemic as most people have but i took it as a personal moral failing like i was like you piece of shit uh, that's how i like to talk to myself yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think we all do i, I was like know. you stupid bitch <laughs> look at you you got fat again what the fuck is wrong with you and i was like hold on uh i've been doing this thing that's kind of works doesn't always work but it works it works like when i hear my friends say bad like like bad things about themselves and like hey don't talk about my friend that way so i've been doing that to myself i've been like hey don't yeah. talk about my friend that way uh and when i remember to do it it really like pulls me out of it and then and especially when i'm like you know don't talk about my friend that way this happens to a lot of people who you know aren't bad people but of course there are times when i'm just i just want to like curl up in bed and be like you're a fucking piece of shit and like there's yeah. something also very comfortable about that uh about that state of mind you know it's something I'm really used to so it's like putting on a put it's like putting on a you know a shitty old sweater that I should probably throw away yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also think I gained some weight I don't weigh myself but I feel it in my body and it, it it is also annoying because I feel like at the start of the pandemic I was yeah I'm running every day I'm exercising every day I'm mm -hmm. eating well and then it just I stopped suddenly and I'm like cool uh, <laughs> now I disappointed myself because I was doing so well <laughs> yeah no I was extremely active in late February I was like doing i was i had started doing live shows again i'd gotten really about five years ago i stopped doing comedy because i was really I, well i was having horrible anxiety and uh i just like i couldn't i was like i was like in a state of emotional fragility where like everything made me cry and i couldn't sleep and i couldn't eat and i was like i definitely can't do live performing in this state like that's not even an that's not even a question and then when i stopped doing comedy i realized that like some of the some of the stuff I'd been really working hard on, I really fucking hated and I didn't want to do anymore. And I was really grateful for that. But then I was like, well, what am I going to do? And my answer was be depressed for two years. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then work on building a small business in another area and like basically like not do comedy. So, um, but I started, you know, I started really feeling like I, I needed that creative outlet again, but you know, not, not wanting to do what I was doing before. And just what I had been doing before was, was long, long form improv comedy at UCB mm -hmm. in New York. And um, yeah. I, there are, there are improv shows that I've seen and people that I've met that I'm very, very grateful for. But I, um, I was really like putting myself, I, I was, I had, I had inserted myself into an impossible system uh, where there's a, there's a creative bottleneck where in order to get on um the main stage and be like a and be like a ucb performer um you know you've got to i don't know i don't know what the magical elixir is not be me <laughs> uh because it never worked yeah, out i think there's me. like a confluence of a lot of things you need to do to but, get there yeah. and there's so many people wanting to do it yeah, yeah but also like the um 
so the exclusivity of getting on that stage created this kind of like shamanic like like presence around the people who made it and like it turned a lot of like very mediocre people into totally arrogant assholes (laughs) it was just like and then i you know sign up for like an improv class and i never knew if i was going to get one of the good teachers or one of the mediocre you know self-important assholes (laughs) and uh and i it was about 50 50. um and i i will say that the the best teachers that i had there are people i will never forget and I'd like to name those people because of how much I love them. Keisha Zoller is the first one that comes to yeah. mind. And I never took an, a formal class with her. I had her as a workshop teacher in the diversity program. And I didn't find out until years later that Keisha never got paid to teach the diversity program. She just did it yeah. like voluntarily, which good for her. And also fuck UCB for that. <laughs> and then Gavin Spieler was another one. Um, Gavin was one of the, um, he was one of the sort of stars of UCB improv. I think he was on the stepfathers with Anthony Ataminik. And, um, if you don't know anything about New York city improv, I'm so sorry that I do. I've I've taken uh, UCB classes. (laughs) Okay, good. I know a lot of the UCB teachers. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So any listeners, I apologize if this is too inside baseball for you. Um, I promise to talk about something else in a minute. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Gavin Spieler, who was on, he was on a weekend improv team, which was a very big deal. But he was also, he was a person of high intelligence, high uh, compassion and high humility. And like that combination made him a wonderful instructor. You know, he, I remember he never, I never felt a bad or ashamed when he would give me notes. And, um, and that was, that's really hard to do because improvisers are sensitive in classroom situations, in all settings, really. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you know, there's this craving for approval that you have when you're a comedy performer that I think, I think everybody to some extent wants approval and acceptance. Um, I just think it's a little bit amplified in comedy performers. Um, yeah, I, I can't diagnose everybody, but I know it's, it's part of my problem is I'm like, please love me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Gavin was great. And when he would give notes, he would be like, when you did this, he was like, you know, I, when you did this specific thing. I thought, well, it would be so great if you had done, and then he would give like three examples of like things you could have done better. And it was, yeah. and because he was so smart and so quick, it was always like, oh yeah, like, oh wow. And so you you would leave with very like concrete ideas of like how to improve your improv. So he was great. Um, he was a great teacher. And I'm sure I'm leaving out some good teachers or maybe I'm not leaving out. Oh, Chelsea Clark. <laughs> Chelsea Clark is great. God, I love her. And as a coach too, uh, you couldn't get a better improv coach, I think, than Chelsea Clark. And then I took one workshop with Anthony Atamanek before um, he got his first like TV job. And mm-hmm. that guy is a great He's teacher. Brilliant and a great teacher. I took a couple of classes with him in London. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's amazing and great. Like I did a character class with him mm-hmm. just before he got uh, the show. Yeah, and the he... president show. I almost taught it all in different characters and it was like amazing to it was like you were in a show during the class while learning for yourself it was amazing mm-hmm. it was like a great experience he's also not a, a, a particularly I wouldn't say he's very blunt in his um, notes mm-hmm. but for me that works uh, he has been one of the people that uh, taught me comedy uh, that like something he said to me made me think oh yeah shit I need to change drastically something I'm doing because mm-hmm. this question 
hurt me, but it also made me realize that I was doing something wrong. Yeah, I felt um, I actually felt very brave in his class because I um, as a as an improviser, what I'm bad at is strategizing. Uh, I'm bad at I'm bad at getting ready for the second and third beats. I'm bad at remembering what happened before. I have a terrible memory, which is not good for improv uh, at all. <laughs> but what I'm good at is making, you know, big choices right away and uh so I felt really I really liked the workshop that I took with him not only because he gave those he does give the the notes he gave were very honest but they were also he also he was like doing this like he was just sort of it was just a workshop so I think it was kind of experimental for him he was doing like a Jungian analysis of everybody so he was like he was basically like saying what was happening subliminally during a sketch during like a not a sketch during an improv scene it was terrifying but it was really (laughs) smart and really good and um and really fun and um and it really I think it 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 really stuck with me and that was just and that was just like one like one day workshop that I took with him and it really stuck with me so yeah I think he's a true artist yeah yeah I have to say that I have I have had the chance of taking a lot of classes with UCP people that come to London uh, to teach and they would organize you've interviewed him uh, in the past Champagne and used to organize that and once you left to America I was uh, the person responsible for bringing UCB people over to London uh, some of them stayed in the room I'm recording this <laughs> <laughs> Uh, while well, I slept in the living room, uh, but yeah. Uh, uh, so like I, I've had great experiences and maybe just a couple of bad ones that I'm not going to name. <laughs> but some of my yeah. favorite people are part of that group of people that came to teach in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That were super open and and uh, also amazing performers. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I really, I, I did, I did really learn a lot from a handful of people, and I also um, really hated a lot of the people. And I think too, for me, I didn't, I didn't fit in, and um, I don't know. I think there were two things happening. One is I didn't fit in very well, and two is that I, I thought I wasn't fitting in very well, so I, I continued to like not fit in very well. So like, I feel like I was like very much, at least partly to blame for not fitting in when I started taking classes, I was already in my thirties. I was sober, so I didn't drink. So there's a, there's a lot of drinking culture around, around that. So if you don't go out to drink after shows or practices, whatever, then you're, you know, missing out on forming these friendships. And so all the people in their twenties who were drinking together were closer with each other than they were with me. And I took that very personally. And also I was really arrogant about my abilities. Like I would just, I was, I was, um, I don't think I was very kind to people who weren't as quote unquote good as me. And I wasn't that good. I was just like, I was anxious to get to the next level. I was like, I yeah. need to get away from these poor improvisers and like, and like work with people who are better than me, which is a terrible attitude to have when you're trying to improvise in a group. It's not good. <laughs> I do relate a lot to that because I, I feel very similarly i'm also i also started doing it in my 30s uh and it's there's less of a progression in in london because there's no or there wasn't when i started no house team to get to and all Mm. of that but it's still there's still like the want to be good so yeah yeah and when you are improvising with someone you're thinking they're they're doing it all wrong Mm -hmm. it's 
it gets you like yeah and yeah I was in my 30s and I wasn't sober when I started doing improv but that started doing improv and like being out several days a week uh made me get sober oh. <laughs> I had to stop drinking because yeah this is crazy yeah uh and but I I have to say that I still really enjoy improv and performing with people I like performing with uh but I I, ha- I have started doing more stand-up and more like sketch comedy and writing my stuff and that's that make that's makes me happier because I um, I feel like when I will perform and that it's something I have to work on myself I feel like because it's not other people's issues is like when you are performing with someone that you feel like oh, they're doing it wrong and I could this scene could be way better if we were all <laughs> good then you get out of that performance and you feel angry mm. uh, yeah and that doesn't happen when I'm doing stand-up if, if anything I feel like angry about at myself because I could have performed better but it's myself it's not like against someone else and mm-hmm. it feels way better that that's way way better so yeah I'm I do way more stand-up now maybe because of that that's wonderful yeah I um I've done I've done I've done I've only done like three stand-up shows this year I I really only do shows when I get invited I I won't do open mics because I I hate men in comedy and uh, the worst of them are in, always in open mics. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't hate all men in comedy, right? There's like, there's a handful of like really amazing people that I'm so glad I know. Shem Pennant being one of them. Uh, I can think of others, maybe if I really <laughs> rack my brain. <laughs> but, uh, but for the most part, you know, and, and, and also like having isolated myself from comedy and spending a lot more time in the past few years with like female friends, I getting back into comedy I was like I was like I was like I hadn't I didn't have a tolerance for it anymore so when I would be at shows and I would hear something I would just be like oh fuck off and then I'd be like wow I used to hear shit like this like four or five nights a week and like it always bothered me but like I was just you know kind of like in it yeah and um yeah and I I'm I'm really I'm so sick of um of there's like these I don't know there are these archetypes that uh, comedians seem to fall into right there's the uh the confessional uh comic and I'd say I'm one of those you know the person is like here's my deepest darkest secret and then a punchline <laughs> that's definitely me and also you know and also I also work on a type of crowd work to get on to get everybody on board I love crowd work it gets everybody on board so I do this thing where I I basically like use uh, child psychology on the crowd where I'm just like do positive reinforcement at the top of the set. Yeah. Um, like, like pick a couple of people. And like, I do, I do a thing where I'm just like try to figure out who needs, who needs building up the most in the audience. I'd like everybody stand up. And I'm like, if you got a hug today from someone you love, sit down <laughs> and then <laughs> and try to identify the people that like, you know, and like make the, and part of that too is like me being anti crowd work because regular crowd work is like, oh look at this guy with the fucking glasses what a piece of shit and uh, i don't yeah, i don't love it's antagonistic that and yeah. yeah because it's also the reason why the first two rows of a comedy show are empty a lot of the time like people don't want to get picked on by the person on stage yeah. so i've been doing this anti-crowd work thing which i've been really enjoying and loving and i have not had the chance to do for like eight months because yeah. it doesn't really work in like a zoom show I did it on the other comics in a show once and it was okay, but like, it, you know, it's hard to gauge the audience's reaction when you're not yeah. in a room with them. Oh, everybody's having this problem. It's not just cause I like to do crowd work. Uh, <laughs> but, um, 
honestly, I feel like I'm a podcaster who sometimes does stand up. Like as as far as like my comedy goes, I love yeah. podcasting. I love interviewing people. I love doing solo episodes and then like sort of editing them afterwards. Like I think that's like my art now. Like that's where I like to be creative. You know, learning to become a better listener learning to ask better questions like that's really what I love right now and I'm so glad I started doing it yeah stand-up can be so crushing and I think that's one of the good things I I really miss the stage but <laughs> one of the good things about this period of not being able to go to shows although there are happening I'm taking like I'm choosing very carefully the shows I do is that I for seven months I haven't heard a guy say something horrible on stage that made me want to leave the room yeah. so yeah that's maybe one of the best things about his period of time uh, was there ever a moment in your life in which you haven't done something for lack of bravery or fear yeah you know I haven't traveled abroad since I was um, like 18 years old. And I think that's for lack of, that's for, that's for fear and lack of bravery. Um, it is, it's connected to uh, mental illness. Like I, in order to stay on a level, I have to have a very strict routine. And I've had this like fear of like, what happens if I'm in a country where I don't speak the language and I lose my medication? Like, and like, and like that will always come up for me when I think about traveling. Now, Now that, again, like the pandemic has changed everything for me. As soon as this fucking thing is over, I'm going to Denmark. <laughs> I'm going to Sweden. I'm going to Germany. I'm going to France. I'm going. Because <laughs> I, you know, I haven't, um, I haven't traveled that much. And I did it out of fear. And, you know, now that I can't travel, I really want to. So, yeah, traveling. Traveling yeah. abroad. I mean, I've traveled a lot in the U.S. I, you know, when my my brother lived in San Francisco and I would go there like two or three times a year to see him. Um, I've always traveled to big cities in the U S but, Oh, there's a second one. Bike riding. Yes. Oh, am, <laughs> we share that. <laughs> I, 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 I rode my bike when I lived in New Orleans. Um, but once I moved to New York, I, I, I didn't, I sold the bike that I had and I didn't get a new one. And I've really been wanting to ride a bike, but I'm afraid that I'm going to be really uncoordinated because I haven't ridden in so long. I'm afraid of falling. I'm afraid of getting hit by a car. I'm afraid of getting sexually harassed on my bike. Even though I get sexually harassed on the street every day, like, why is it different? I don't know. I'm afraid of getting, like, groped on my bike, if that makes sense. Like, in yeah. a way that, like, it feels less safe than walking down the street. And I have it been... It feels because you're, yeah. you're trying to coordinate other, other stuff, right? Yeah. You're trying to ride a bike. So if something happens, yeah. it's hard. Walking is way more natural yeah. and, and I'm intuitive. afraid of getting angry like I don't have as much anger in my life these days and I'm very happy with that and I'm afraid if I start riding a bike again I'm gonna just be angry again I'm gonna be like a very angry person like I'm just gonna show up to where I you know need to be being like all these fucking people in their cars are like goddamn back motherfucker you know <laughs> I do. I, I used to drive in Portugal and oh. I was angry all the time yeah. from driving. So I guess that's the same. Yeah. 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 I learned how to ride a bike um, maybe two years ago. Wow. I had never uh, done it before. And I'm very afraid of traffic. So I have never gone on the road. And I'm currently waiting for a friend to fix my bike for me to finally 
start going on the traffic yeah. but he's taking well i don't know it's the second month still since he has the bike with him and he hasn't even looked at it yet so oh. it's maybe like a year before I, maybe, I do it. maybe you're gonna have to pay somebody else to do it yeah yeah you have to go get your bike and be like sorry man I've, i found a bike mechanic <laughs> yeah i so i have saved up enough money for a bike i i know approximately what kind of bike i want and when i'm when I'm, I'm going to Florida for a couple weeks, but when I get back, uh, I know which shop I'm going to. I know what kind of bike I want. I know how much I want to spend. And then I think my plan is just to ride at like four in the morning for yeah. a few days um, when there's less traffic and also less people to see me because for whatever reason, I'm not embarrassed to do a podcast about sex and talk about sucking people's dicks and talk about getting fucked in the ass but like the idea that i might like stumble on a bicycle in front of a stranger is like mortifying to me like what's my fucking problem <laughs> i i again we're the same because when i started practicing like in my little indoor garden that's like shared through by yeah. four buildings uh i was embarrassed of like stumbling in front of the teenagers that are smoking weed oh. outside and i'm like mm, they will mock me yeah they, okay. they probably wouldn't because they're just uh, happily smoking weed Yeah. they couldn't care less yeah. but also uh, it's like no, the ridicule of teenagers like it can't really do anything to you but boy if if a teenager makes fun of me i sure do feel it's much worse than if it's an adult <laughs> i don't know why <laughs> probably because i was so sensitive as a teenager yeah yeah and also teenagers can be mean they can be so mean i should yeah. i was a very mean teenager i didn't spend a lot of time making i was i was very um I would say that as a teenager, I was concerned with punching up. I was very anti-bully, but I was also kind of a bully because I was like always ready to get into it with somebody. I was like, I was an angry kid. And once I discovered yeah. um, my voice, which was yelling, I was like, I was ready to yell at anybody. And uh, I try not to do that these days. I was good at physical violence, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds terrible. No. But I have, I have, have beaten up boys that were threatening my friends or yeah. insulting them and i'm like yes i can beat you up yeah fuck yeah <laughs> yeah I, those i don't know those boys sound like i mean look the the impact that doing violence to other people has on me makes it not worth it when i when i hit somebody i feel bad so that's why you know but it doesn't mean that some people don't deserve to get hit yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm, i'm fully aware that the people i have hit in the past deserved they it. deserved it <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I don't offer violence as, yeah. as much now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there anything coming up in your life that will require you to be brave in order to achieve? Yeah, I am volunteering on a very important legislative agenda for the DSA in New York City. I can't comment on it like more than that because they're we're we're in the research phase. Um, but I volunteered as a researcher and that's gonna be a lot of reading and a lot of process information and then communicating it back to people who are very mm -hmm. intelligent and I'm, I'm really scared every time I sit down to do it because you know it's been a long time since I've had since I've done this kind of work you know I still have ADHD I have you know I'm ways to cope with it I have medication I yeah. have other things but um, you know it never goes away and um, 
you know, the, I, the idea that I can contribute something to this thing I really believe in is exciting. Um, but the idea that I might fail and look stupid is also there too. And like very afraid of letting these people down, very afraid of doing poor work that is not useful, wasting time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I got going on. That's, that's (laughs) a good one. Uh, And I'm happy you're putting yourself out there to do it. Yeah. 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 Even though you, it's probably good work. It Even is. though you can't share yeah. what it is. I'm sure it is. It's great. It is good work. And we're trying, you know, we're basically just trying to get, uh, you know, New York laws to be more progressive. And, mm-hmm. and it's a great, um, it's a great group of people that I'm working with. They're so smart. They're so motivated. They're so passionate about change. It's, I love, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Is there someone in your life, either like someone, you know, or a public figure or someone real or fictional? that you will use as an example of bravery? I think my youngest brother, um, his name's Durward, he's, which is D-U-R-W-A-R-D. It's an unusual name, it's a family name. My brother Durward is one of the bravest people I know. And talking about feeling the fear and doing it anyway, that's, he's, he's always who I think of. You know, speak, he is extremely well-traveled and he, um, he came out as gay when he was 14 and he moved to San Francisco when he was 17. He graduated high school a year early just so he could get out there. And then he started traveling internationally at like a very young age. And um, I remember that the summer before, the summer he went to Spain, he, I remember spending time with him before he had to go and he was so nervous about his upcoming trip. And he was like, I'm so afraid I, I don't even want to go anymore. Um, but he went and it was a really amazing thing for me to see because I had always thought of him of something as somebody who was just supremely confident, but he's not, he's afraid. He just does it. He just feels, you know, yeah. he just does it anyway. And um, that's really impressive to me. He's always been um, just, uh, he's also extremely compassionate and loving and he treats people well. And that's something I really admire in him, especially given, you know, what he's endured as a gay person in America. Um, yeah. And not that he doesn't have anger and hate uh, sometimes, but for the most part, he's really, he's really loving and compassionate and he's a people that he's a person that people love. And mm-hmm. I really admire that about him. So maybe him. Uh, we're at the end of uh, the podcast. Uh, the last thing I ask is if you have any plugs. Oh, sure. Uh, so I mostly I'm just plugging my social media. So I'm on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Honey Leave It Show. Leave It is spelled L-E-A-V-I-T-T. And then on Twitter, I'm Honey Leave It. My podcast, uh, Honey Leave It Show, is on um, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Yeah, I think that's that's what I want to plug. I want to plug the pod and the and the social media for the pod. Great. This was great i really enjoyed our conversation and i'm happy i broke the wall of inviting someone i haven't met i loved talking to you oh thank you so much i really loved being on your show thank you mariana thank you so much for listening you can follow me at at mariana's beats on twitter and instagram for all dowdy updates as all podcasts will tell you all rates and reviews will be super welcome and do share the podcast with your friends or on your socials hashtag dowdy pod I would also like to know your picks of people who, to you, are examples of bravery. Share them on your reviews or tweet them at me. Huge, huge thank you to Champagne for the podcast jingle and a bunch of other things that are podcast related. If you've enjoyed listening to Dowdy, have some spare to give, and would like to support me and help me improve on my tech and skills, all tips are welcome through PayPal and Coffee on at Mariana's Beats. I've been Mariana Feijó. Until next week.